0: Thank you, Mary. Appreciate it again. Good morning to everyone. We're glad you're here. And, um, of course, Bob gave us a great welcome there, so I'm not going to repeat what he said. And I do have a prayer letter here from Alan Brooks. you remember Alan coming? We, we, he came here, well, I guess it's been about two years ago now. And we participated in the uh, fundraising for the printing of Bibles for the NEOS project, which went over great. Remember, it was just an outstanding thing. Now they've come up on, on an opportunity to um, have a Bible distribution in the same like manner in the Solomon Islands. And I've mentioned this several months ago. And it's been a long process, you know, raising the funds and getting the Bibles printed in Australia and one of the things i should have mentioned this is a prayer request but one of the things that came up was the the printer in australia has the binding machine broke and they weren't able to get the covers on the Bibles, so they had to ship them up to another printer and get the covers put on of course which cost them more money and but they were able to kind of push it along they the, everything stayed on schedule they um... i think as we speak they're on a boat going to the solomon islands and they've got at least three, let's see if he tell yeah, three teams of people from the United States, some from New Zealand, some from Australia, uh, all that are, you know, it's an all coordinated effort. They're going to be arriving at different times and they'll be going out in these teams into various, uh, some, remember, very remote areas uh, requiring four wheel drive vehicles and so on. But just like in Indonesia, on the island of Neas, they have permission to go to the schools and present the scriptures to all the school kids, which you know, is a great thing because it will get into the hands of an awful lot of families that way. And the contact then would be basically exponential as to how many they'll reach. I think they had, he doesn't mention it again in here, but I think they had 10,000 Bibles printed. He's got the cost pegged at $2.88 a Bible if nothing else goes wrong. (laughs) So that was a, you know, I mean, as things go, that's a pretty cheap gospel effort, wouldn't you think? A pretty cheap distribution effort, getting the word of God out in that fashion. And so I wanted to give you a little update on that, tell you what was going on. And uh, he and Robert Meyer, then you know both of those guys, they're both heading out to the Solomons on uh, October, uh, excuse me, uh, August the 5th to be a part of that whole that whole effort okay we want to turn back to Haggai this morning I want to see if I can continue on with where we've been we've spent two two Sundays in chapter one and, and I kind of touched on it again last week although uh, Jackie got most of the service which was a good service and I enjoyed that myself it was great I I thought to myself, you know, I'll bet the staff at BIMI would enjoy hearing from her because, you know, Jackie, because of her ministry, we don't put her name out there anywhere, and we don't identify, you know, what she's doing for pretty obvious reasons. Uh, Working with Jewish people in her ministry, and she, her big contact, you know, was with the Society for the Distribution of the Hebrew Scriptures, and so I act was actually able to get her to come out on Wednesday morning and do a a very abbreviated uh presentation over what we got and the staff really enjoyed it when we got done Jim Butler asked if anybody had any questions and one lady said immediately said yeah can we ever come back again <laughs> they wanted to hear more so it, it was really great and I know she's doing a great great work and I'm glad that we are able to participate in that you know we voted to Give her a thousand dollars towards um, expenses of coming up here and her stay and everything, but then the rest to go towards her work in getting the scriptures out to the Jewish people. So I think that's an extremely worthy investment on our part, and I'm glad we we participated in that. Okay, we'll try to hit chapter two of Haggai and verses one through nine today. And it's, um, you know, it's been a great thing that's happened there in Israel, in Jerusalem. They've come back from Babylon. They're uh, now back at work, rebuilding the temple. Fifteen years earlier, they had laid the foundation and then... Through discouragement and distraction and, and opposition, they just gave it up. But in the meantime, they didn't give up on their own homes. They continued to fatten them up and make them nicer and all that sort of thing. Did a little remodeling, maybe redid the kitchen and, you know, things like that we tend to do. But all to the neglect of the rebuilding of the Lord's house. And we found then that because of their neglect, there was a direct correlation in chapter 1 between what they failed to do and their economic prosperity. Because he told them there in verse 6, you were earning money as if you were putting it in a bag with holes in it. And you're planting your crops and you can't, you know, get enough to eat. You don't have enough to drink. And he told them down in verse 11, he says, I called for a drought upon the land and upon the mountains and upon the corn and upon the new wine and upon the oil and upon that which the ground bringeth forth and upon men and upon cattle and upon all the labor of the hands. I mean, he just left nothing untouched. It was a heavy price they had to pay for neglecting the Lord's house. We also found out that there was a a message then from Haggai and of course, Zechariah was involved in this, but Haggai's message was the first one. And we found a distinction here between his preaching and the preaching of men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on, wherein the people just abused the prophets, rejected their message and spurned every all that they had to say. Whereas with Haggai their hearts were open and they received the message and they determined to get back to the work and finish building that temple. And of course we found from that then that you ha- the reason was because there was a faithful remnant that had been chosen. When uh, Darius put out his decree, or Cyrus, that they were to come back, he says, any of you that would come, in other words, any of you that had a heart for this work, and we put special emphasis upon that, the fact that it was a determined effort, and they had to have a heart to want to come back to this work. So consequently, when Haggai preached, Here was a people that had been in captivity for, um, well, close to 60 years at this point and then had been free basically for the last 15 years and their hearts were open and tender towards this message. And so they had a much quicker response and they determined then that they would go and build the temple. But here we are just a couple of months later and Haggai is preaching to him again. So here we are in chapter 2, verse 1. It says In the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord. And be strong, O Joshua, the son of Josedech, the high priest. And be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when ye came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you. Fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. (laughs) kind of reminds you of somebody that when they're praying, they go, Dear Father this, and dear Father that, and dear Father and our Father. You know, they're repeated about a hundred times. And here he repeats, saith the Lord of hosts, just over and over and over. Getting across the idea that this message is from the Lord. It is him speaking. Now back there in verse 1, when he says here, in the seventh month. In the one and twentieth day. Now that's the month of Tishri. Uh, and the twenty-first day. It's a significant day. And so I want us to look at that for, for just a moment. Um, go back to Leviticus chapter twenty-three. <coughs> Leviticus twenty-three. And we'll look at verses 39 to 44 here. And there's a a specific date reference we're looking at here. In verse 39, he says, Also in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when ye have gathered in the fruit of the land, ye shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days, On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. And ye shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and the boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook. And ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. And ye shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations Ye shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Ye shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And Moses declared unto the children of Israel the feast of the Lord. Of course, what we have here is the instructions for the feast of tabernacles or the feast of booths that um, as we call it. And you'll notice there he says on the 15th day was when this feast was to begin. Now if you take 15, you start on the 15th and you continue for seven days, what day does what number does the seventh day land on? the 21st or the one and twentieth day, as it says in Haggai chapter 2 and verse 1. So what this message uh, was, in, well, it was implying several things here, but number one is what should have been, well, looking in verse 39, you'll notice there it says, when ye have gathered in the fruit of the land. This is what was the harvest time. This was a time when they were supposed to be full of joy and rejoicing and giving thanks unto God for what had happened during the the growing season and now they were able to harvest their produce. But you come back here to Haggai and it was just the opposite condition. Everything was dried up. There was a drought and they didn't have anything to bring in. And here on the last day of this feast, they were to... They were, you know, getting this message here from Haggai. I want to look up something else, too. But Oh, yeah. First Kings. <clears throat> Chapter eight. First Kings eight. In 1 Kings 8, we have the dedication of Solomon's temple. And notice he says there in verse 1, Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and the heads of the, uh, of the tribes and the chief fathers and so on. In verse 2, he says, And all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. So not only were they commemorating the Feast of Tabernacles, but it was in this same feast that Solomon had dedicated his temple, the first temple. Remember now, that temple was destroyed. Now they're to be rebuilding the temple, and it's on the same occasion. They're to be rebuilding it at the time Solomon had dedicated the first one. Um. There was something, oh yeah, then I wanted to go to John chapter 7. John 7 and verse 37. Yeah, verse 37. We have a, a similar occasion where... It says, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Well, that day was the last day of the feast. Actually, it was the eighth day. They poured out water uh, for seven days. And then on the last day, they didn't. But Jesus is saying here to them on that last day, when they wouldn't have been pouring water out, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And so there was some profound significance in that saying of the Lord Jesus Christ and the identification of those Jews with that feast day. They knew, in other words, just what he was saying. And of course, the promise to them then, verse 38, was He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. And so, of course. Isaiah 55, 1. I'll just, we'll just look at one verse there. Isaiah 55, 1 would give us a historical basis for that, that statement, as the Scripture saith. In 55, 1 of Isaiah, he says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat, yea, come, buy wine and milk without money And without price. An invitation to to, to come to those waters that gave life. And him being the life giver. And so we made mention also last couple of messages that when he admonished them in verse 8 of Haggai chapter 1. He said go ye or go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house. That there was an extra measure of significance in their going up to the mountain and the spiritual application of the, the importance of that house that they were to build, the Lord's temple. And so we see all kinds of imagery built into this feast day, this project which they were undertaking, the temple itself, and the work that they were to do. Now, in verse two of chapter two, he says, "Speak now to Zerubbabel." And I didn't mention it; I don't think before yet. But the word, the name Zerubbabel, means "born in Babylon." So he had—he was not of those who had seen the previous temple. But we know that he Jesus, or uh, Jesus, <laughs> that Haggai brings out here this question about you that saw the former temple. It had been about 66 years ago that the old temple had been, Solomon's temple had been torn down. So some of these men then who had been, well, they were kids then, had been transported off to Babylon and had now come back and were now like some of us. Old, either gray-haired or no-haired. And they were looking at this foundation for this temple that was being laid. And they were making, some of the older men then were making comparison of that with Solomon's temple. Of course, if you go back to Ezra, I think it's Ezra 3, and I think we kind of gandered over there. But let's take a look at that again. We didn't really read the whole chapter. Um, Ezra 3 and or 5 I don't remember now I didn't write that down I don't think is it 312 yeah I did write it down it's 3 8 through 13 but in verse 12 is the key one. many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men That had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud for joy. Well, the ones that hadn't seen the former house, you know, they were full of joy at the prospect of building the Lord's house. The ones who had seen Solomon's wept for sorrow because of the magnificence of Solomon's temple in comparison to what they saw was going to be erected here. And, of course, it may be, you know, remember in in Solomon's day, he had a father who had prepared the way. Basically, he had accumulated a lot of wealth, both in the temple and the scriptures tell us that David himself personally gave. And the men of the nation gave towards the building of the temple. Well, I will tell you, when they came back from Babylon, they didn't have those kind of resources the king of Babylon you remember gave them back the vessels that were to go into the temple and provided some funding initially and I would assume here the Bible doesn't tell us at all but I would assume they still had saved that money and it was still available but my point being is is that they didn't have all the resources available to rebuild the temple back to Solomon's glory and size and so here they are weeping On the one hand, and shouting for joy on the other. And Haggai is, you know, he's taking note of that in this message. He tells them in verse 3 concerning those left of you that saw the house of, of glory in her first glory, and how do you see it now? What's the comparison? And this one here, he says, looks just like, it's like nothing in comparison to Solomon's. But he's using this as a launching pad to encourage the people to be strong and take courage and get about the work and build the house. And so in verse 4, you'll see a threefold um, statement of taking courage. He tells them, he tells Zerubbabel to be strong. He tells Josetak, the high priest, be strong. And he says, all ye people of the land to be strong. And then he says, and work. Now it's an interesting construction there because be strong is, of course, singular, applying to each one of the men and then the group of people, the people of the land. But the word work is plural. And that means it applies to all three, the two men plus the people of the land. And so they were all equally alike to take courage, the leaders as well as those involved in the work and those providing the support to get involved in this work. Now, there's an interesting parallel back in Joshua chapter 1 to this whole, this whole idea of this uh, taking you know, courage. And you remember well the verse there in Joshua, but there's, he actually makes the same kind of a threefold uh, admonishment to be strong and take courage. In Joshua chapter 1 and verse 6, he says, Be strong and of a good courage. And then in in verse 7, he says, Be thou strong and very courageous. And then in verse 9, he says, Be strong and of a good courage. Now, I don't know if this is... I didn't read anywhere or find anywhere that this was some kind of a formula that was used. But it's interesting to me that he would do so in a threefold manner like this. Plus, that, in addition to um, First Chronicles chapter twenty-eight. I want us to turn back there now. First Chronicles chapter twenty-eight and uh, ten. First Chronicles twenty-eight ten. Now this is concerning. David's final instructions to Solomon. You know, David's about ready to die. He's turned the reins over to his son Solomon. And he's giving him his instructions regarding the building of the Lord's house. And in verse 10, you'll see he says there, Take heed now, for the Lord hath chosen thee to build an house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. That little word do is the same word translated work over here in Haggai. So in essence, what David told his son Solomon to take courage and do the work or perform it or do it, because that's what it really means, just do it. Haggai is using the same message towards the people of the land, towards Zerubbabel and Um, Joshua the high priest or Jehozadek the high priest to do the work to take courage to know that the Lord is with you and of course that's his promise he says for I am with you you remember how back in chapter 1 immediately upon the response of the people to put their hand to the work and get busy building the temple The Lord said, I'm with you. And you know, isn't that exactly the opposite of how we want it? We want the Lord to say, I'm with you, and then we'll go do the work. And he's simply looking for a willing heart. He's looking for people that are open to doing the work of the gospel. Which, by the way, is very essential to our Christian life if we're to be counted among those who are the faithful, is to be doing it, not just believing it. Well, he moves on in verse 5, and he says, Concerning this courage, notice what he gives as the basis for giving them courage and to be strong in this work. He says, According to the word that I cut with you, when you came out of egypt for that's what the word covenanted there really is i cut a word with you we made a, an agreement one translation says i made a contract with you back then when you came out of egypt so my spirit remaineth among you fear ye not Well, there was a lot of opposition going on at this time. And you remember back in Ezra chapter 5, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, Tat and I, the governor, along with others in the land, had risen up in opposition. And so um, immediately upon them agreeing to put their hand to the work and get busy and complete the temple, opposition rose right up, and they tried to stop the work. And so Haggai now is saying, just be strong, take courage in the Lord. He's with you, and you'll get the work done. In essence, that's what he, that's what he boiled it down to. That's what he was saying. Uh, look back to Nehemiah for a moment. You remember that Ezra and Nehemiah, these books were written over, concerning the same period of time. And it also concerns the same period of time that Nehemiah or me, Nehemiah Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, these last three books, as we mentioned earlier, were dealing with. They're prophecies. These prophets were speaking during the time that these books were dealing with, Ezra and Nehemiah. So if you look at Nehemiah chapter nine and verse twenty. when the people had determined to put their heart to the work, they had repented of their sins and so on and determined to do, do what God had called them to do. He says, thou gavest also thy good spirit to instruct them. Now, this is just simply Nehemiah reminding them of what God uh, had promised he would do and that he had given their, his, of his spirit to them and withheldest not thy manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. And the point being then is that you know there there was a God's spirit was with them in this. And God cooperates with us in the same way. When we have a heart to do his work, and when we step forward and make a commitment to actually do it then he has a promise of his spirit abiding with us, remaining with us. And the same spirit that was with the fathers when they came out of Egypt and he covenanted with them at Sinai in their building of the temple, the um, making of all the articles and all the construction work that went into making the tabernacle. When God's... And by the way, you know, God says there he gave them, uh, uh, these artisans, a, a spirit that enabled them with skill to perform and do all that work in constructing the tabernacle. And he's simply reminding them, hey, that same spirit that I had then with my people under that covenant is with you. And that gave them the strength to go on. That gave them the courage to do what they they were supposed to be doing. And so in verse 6 then, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Now he turns from the present occupation to what's to come. And I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. This desire of all nations. Now, it's been a big controversial translation there because uh, the word desire, if you look this up in Strong's, you're going to find about Oh, I didn't count them, but I'm going to say there's probably 15 to 20 different words used to translate this one word one of the translations was uh, precious one was um, beloved, and I don't remember the others, I didn't write them down, but, but it, it's created some controversy and debate as to what the actual translation should be, and some argue for this translation right here which I think is legitimate, but there's probably more to it than just this word desire. For instance, if you if you were to read it in this manner, I will shake all nations, and the beloved of all nations shall come, boy, that would implant in our minds quickly something that would we you know we would relate with and resonate with, wouldn't we? Concerning the coming of the Messiah. Jewish. Tradition and history applied this to the Messiah. And I think that's exactly what he's talking about here. Many times you'll see this translated concerning, um, it'll be an adjective, precious jewels. Pleasant, he talks about the land of Israel being the pleasant land. And other such uh, Adjectives using to describe certain things. In other places, it's talking about wealth. Like silver and gold talks about, uh, specifically, monetary things. Other places, it talks about, specifically, just material things. An abundance of goodly things. Uh, That's another translation, goodly things. And so, when you look at this, really, when you take it all together... It's really a look at the future promise of the Messiah coming to the land of Israel and all of these things uh, that will 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 be uh, in abundance in the land of Israel, for instance, turn to Isaiah in chapter 60 and I didn't write this down so you have to I'll have to Try to remember which verses. Oh, that's just verses one through nine, I believe it is. Right, Isaiah chapter sixty, verses one through nine, and just take a look at this for a moment. This is talking about the future, the millennial kingdom. It is talking about the messianic rule, the time when Messiah would be upon the earth, and what would be happening in the nation of Israel. And he says, Arise, in verse 1, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. Well, it's, this is the time. This is, the Messiah has come. He's going to take his throne, establish his rule, and here's what will happen. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, And his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light. Now notice these words, come. He's talking about that which will come to Israel. And kings to the brightness of thy rising. Lift up thine eyes round about and see all they gather themselves together. They come to thee. Thy sons shall come from far, and thy daughters shall be nursed at thy side. Then thou shalt see and flow together, and thine heart shall fear and be enlarged, because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. The multitude of camels shall cover thee. The dromedaries of Midian and uh, Ephah shall and all from Sheba shall come, they shall bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together unto thee, the rams of Nebiath shall minister unto thee, they shall come up with acceptance on mine altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. Who are these that fly as a cloud, and as the doves to their windows? Surely the isles shall wait for me, And the ships of Tarshish first, to bring thy sons from far, their silver and their gold with them, unto the name of the Lord thy God, and to the Holy One of Israel, because he hath glorified thee. And so, in this picture, the Son of God has come to Israel. And as a result of his coming and his light shining upon Israel, all of these other blessings and benefits... Are going to be bestowed on the nation of Israel. And so when he says, The desire of all nations, or the desire of, uh, of all nations shall come, and it will fill this house with glory, I think he's talking about that time. He's talking about that time when all of these things would finally come to pass. And then he goes on, though, to tell them in verse 7 though i will shake all nations and in verse uh over and we, we have to look ahead a little bit but over in verses uh 20 in verse 22 he says i will overthrow the throne of kingdoms and i will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen and i will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them and the horses and their riders shall come down everyone by this uh, uh by the uh, uh, by the sword of his brother. But back in verse 21 then he says. In view of all that. He's, <laughs> here's what's going to happen. I will shake the heavens. And the earth. And that was going to be the end result of the shaking. And so there was going to be. This great judgment. That would come over the earth. Now let's look back. To Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We have there a quotation from. Haggai chapter 2 and verse 6. <clears throat> now, in the writer to the Hebrews, is encouraging these Jewish Christians to continue on in the faith, to not give up, to cling to Christ. To be, as we saw, we see back in chapter 3 of Hebrews, that they were to continue in the faith. And doing so, they would then enter into their rest. Well, here now he's admonishing them that in view of all of that, he says in verse 18, Ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest. But the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. Now, of course, that was all at Mount Sinai. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And that commandment was, if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But on the other hand, he says... Ye, you Hebrew Christians who have taken Christ and left all that behind that pertained to the law. He says, Ye are come again, or you are come unto the Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. And you remember how a couple weeks ago we focused on that very thought. The idea that they had forsaken the visible material things that were associated with the worship in the Old Testament. And now their focus was to be on the invisible and the heavenly. Which is why it is such a danger for you and I to associate anything of any material thing with our worship of the Lord. That's why he said, make no graven image. Any icon, anything that we think will help us be more effective in worshiping the Lord. I don't care whether it's a cross we hang around our neck or jewelry, whether it's a building or whether it's a a picture on a wall or a statue or incense or any of those kinds of things. They add not one thing to our faith. Our faith is focused heavenward on the true tabernacle that the Lord says is in heaven, which the earthly tabernacle was patterned after. And then he says, concerning that general assembly and church of the firstborn, written in heaven, he says, then he notice he says, and he turns and says, And to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of just men made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Verse 25. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that uh, spake on earth, much more... Shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven? Whose voice then shook the earth? Now, of course, he's referring back to at Mount Sinai. You remember the whole mountain quaked and shook and there was thundering and lightning. And I mean, we'd have been in fear as well. You don't wonder. And by by the way, that makes you think ahead to the tribulation period, doesn't it? when the Lord shakes the earth again and men are going to call upon the rocks to fall on him because of this great judgment that's going to take place. But now he says, he hath promised saying yet once more I shake the earth, not the earth only, but also heaven. There's going to be a terrible shaking, a judgment of the earth and the heaven, a shaking of heaven. Because Satan is going to be removed from his throne. The throne which the Lord Jesus will then occupy while he rules this earth as Messiah. And it goes on in verses 27 and 28. He talks about shaking again this word and this word yet once more. And by the way, I should point out here then. The quotation that he is making here is from the Septuagint version, the Greek translation of Haggai 2.6. And so when he says, yet once more, he signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may may remain. Well, what is it that's shaken and removed? Well, it's all of those things that we've associated with this earth and the things that He has instructed you and I to turn away from. The things that remain and cannot be shaken are those heavenly things that He previously instructed us to look unto the heavenly things and so he says in verse 28 wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved and that word moved there is the same word translated shaken earlier "We we receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear isn't that what Haggai was telling the people of his day serve the Lord with reverence and fear Well, of course it sounds like a contradiction back there he said fear not be strong and of courage and fear not but he was talking about don't fear the enemy fear the Lord that's what he's telling us here we are to be fearing the Lord for our God is a consuming fire and so this whole prophecy here concerning this shaking of the nations all is looking forward to a grand climax in which those who have maintained faith, the faith of the, of the disciples and the believers of Hebrews chapter 11 are, is all going to come to fruition. And all the promises that were given to them and to us will be fulfilled once the judgment seat of Christ has taken place once the Lord has shaken the heavens and the earth, once he has brought uh, into submission the nations of this earth and the kings of this earth, when Satan has been removed from his throne, Jesus has been established on that throne and his rule is established and all these blessings will flow to those who have maintained this faith that he's been talking about. And so what I'm trying to say here then is his focus on building this temple... Getting the thing instructed was very important. It built a great and grand picture for them as well as us of what was yet to come. He tells them in verse 9, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former saith the Lord of hosts, and in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. You know, I think it's, we get a mistaken idea sometimes when we talk about, well, the first temple and the second temple, and then there's going to be a another temple for the tribulation, then another temple for the millennium, and we talk about various temples. But when you read the scriptures very carefully, he really is relating them all to one and the same thing. It's the temple. And he talks about this place. And the focus there is on a location and what he is going to do in that location when he comes again. And so this glory that these, this temple, this earthly temple had with the Shekinah glory And the presence of God dwelling among them was going to be stripped away and far outdone in the coming kingdom. And the glory of God that will be upon this earth will be like nothing Israel ever saw, as great as it was. It will far supersede that. And so all we say then this morning is, you know, when the Lord says, put your hand to the plow, And don't look back. This ought to give us some real strong encouragement to just keep pushing on. Keep pushing on in the faith because there is a great day ahead. A day coming when, I mean, you know, when he says, I hath not seen and ear hath not heard the things that God has in store for them that love him. I mean, these things paint a picture for us that just puts the perspective of that future glory in such a grand light. You you can't even come close to envisioning what the glory of that heavenly scene and that millennial rule will be like. And that will move us to press on and stay faithful and not give up. And I trust that's what we'll all do in our own hearts. We'll make that, that commitment to do that very thing. And, of course, when you make that commitment, don't forget that he says, be strong and do it. We ought to be busy doing the gospel as much as we are believing it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for this glorious privilege we have of serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We're thankful that we can call him Savior because he has saved us from our sins. And what a price he paid on that cross. Father, I thank you also that we can call him Lord. Because we've submitted our lives unto him and allowed him to be a Lord of our lives. And I pray, God, that you will just every day teach us, instruct us, give us further insight and understanding of what it means for Jesus to be Lord of our lives. And we'll give you all the thanks and praise for what you accomplish in the end. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We want to give you an opportunity.